Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for tonight, this opportunity to be together and to open your word. Thank you that we have the ancient words that do impart to us life eternal. Help us see Jesus Christ. Draw us to him. Teach us of your will and his character that we might reflect that in our lives as we follow in obedience by the power of your spirit. Thank you for your love upon us your care for us, the way you always accomplish your will, even though sometimes, Lord, we walk in disobedience. We thank you that it never changes your will. You always accomplish what you will accomplish by your great glory, power, and majesty. And we thank you for that in Christ's name. Amen. All right, let's take our Bibles. Turn in them to our study of the book of Ephesians. Ephesians. It's been several weeks since we have been here. And so because of that, because we've been away from it, I think it's necessary just to do a bit of review for us tonight as we approach our time. As long as I have been a Christian, particularly over the past 27 years of pastoral ministry, <clears throat> I often think about and have both personal and pastoral concerns for living out our Christian lives, continually thinking through the struggle that each one of us has as Christians of practical sanctification. Of course, when I'm talking about practical sanctification, I'm just meaning living for Christ in our life every day in obedience to Christ. Right? I mean that while we understand that living for Christ is a constant battle against uh, not just the forces of evil that are against us in the world, in other words, there's, there's a battle outside of us, there's a battle around us in the temporal world in which we live, as Paul has told us here in Ephesians, that is run by the forces of darkness, those who are... Uh, have been given by God to be the prince of the power of the air, right? The spirit that's now working in the sons of disobedience, he says in chapter 2, verse 2. But more so, the battle really that rages even hotter than that is the battle against the outworking of our own flesh. The outworking of our own sinfulness. The sinful life before Christ. Our as my wife and I like to say sometimes, our B.C. days, our before Christ days. That sinful fleshiness that's still with us. How to gain constant and ever-increasing victory over that. That's what I'm talking about when I think about practical sanctification and the struggle that it is. We, we all know by way of experience in our own lives and our own honesty with ourselves that living the Christian life is a war against self. It is a daily, moment by moment, minute by minute war against self. To live for Christ means that we must not live for self. As we were studying through the book of Galatians, the Apostle Paul exhorted us to walk by the Spirit. And he said, if we walk by the Spirit, we will not carry out the deeds of the flesh. So there is a war going on for us uh, to live for Christ, which means we must not live for self. And 
Therefore, each and every day we must put off that which are the deeds of the flesh and put on the deeds of the Spirit. Of course, Paul in Ephesians gets into that a little bit later in his letter. And so by way of practice in our life, practical sanctification is a war against self. And we lose the skirmishes from time to time. We, we know the war is won, right? We are in Christ. We are secure in Christ. The war is already won in the ultimate sense. And yet there are skirmishes that go on on a day-by-day basis. And from time to time, we lose those skirmishes. In other words, we give in to self. We satisfy self rather than living for Christ. And we oftentimes win at the skirmishes in our Christian life. We exercise obedience. We follow after the Spirit. We do what is right before God. And we honor our Father in that way as we glorify Him through our obedience. And I'm constantly uh, striving in our Christian lives. We are constantly striving for greater victory and what can motivate that in our lives. We, we're striving for greater victory, and we're looking for those motivations. Well, this has been, I think, on the mind of the Apostle Paul from the beginning of this letter that he writes to the believers in Ephesus. Everything that he writes to our Ephesian brothers and sisters in Christ is to motivate and encourage them to live for Christ each and every day. This is why he writes it. In fact, you'll notice in chapter 4, verses 1 to 3, he says, Therefore I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you've been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance for one another in love, being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. So you have the exhortation of what to do, you have the exhortation how to do it with humility and gentleness, with patience, with tolerance, and you have the reality of what that produces within the body of Christ. It produces a unity, it preserves unity, it preserves peace. And of course this is the intent of the Apostle Paul, that the body of Christ would not be a fractured unit, particularly the Jews and Gentiles as they were, this is the beginning really of the the earthly Christian ministry, the church ministry of the local body of Christ on earth. And the Jews didn't like that necessarily. And the Gentiles, they had these rifts that were always going on. And of course, Paul is drawing all that together saying we are one in Christ. And so this is what Paul wants. Live for Christ individually. Strive for your Christian life individually because living for Christ brings about unity in the body of Christ. I've said this before as we were studying years ago. I think it was in the Gospel of Mark. I said, if you want to see my love for you as a Christian, Right? If we want to see love for one another as Christian brothers and sisters, then live in obedience to Christ to the maximum. You want to love your brothers and sisters in Christ to the maximum? Then obey Christ. This is what Paul is saying. Live for Christ individually because living for Christ individually brings about a corporate unity, a unity of the body of Christ. If you want disunity, then live for 
for yourself. Live a sinful life. Dishonor God with your words. Dishonor God with your deeds. Don't live for Christ. Live for self, and you will only create disunity in the body. But you will also be calling into question whether you are truly saved at all. If you say you're a Christian and yet you continuously live for self, you're calling into question whether you actually know Jesus Christ at all. But if you're a true believer, then live selflessly and build unity in the body. The question is, where does all this begin? Where does this understanding of practical sanctification, this understanding of how we are to live, where does it all begin? How can we be motivated internally to war against self with the greatest success? How do we begin to to live for Christ on a regular basis and have constant and continual victory? Well, Paul answers, I believe, that question by taking us to, as we have seen, the majestic heights of blessing that we have been granted by God. You have to start with what you have, what God has given to you. Remember in our study of chapter 1, the Apostle Paul reminds us of all that God has granted to us by means of our relationship with Jesus Christ. And He did it all before the creation of the world. He granted it all to us before He ever created anything. He linked us, if you will, with Christ. That's why when you read chapter 1, you see that reality over and over and over again. We are in Christ. We are in Him. We are in Him. We are in Him. And so Paul has reminded us of that. We don't have time to really review all that we've already studied tonight, but they are magnificent promises. They are magnificent realities that secure our future hope in the glories of heaven with God. And Paul has reminded us of those things so that when we come to chapter 2, we are able to see and really marvel at the massive contrast between who we were before God brought all of those promises into action through Christ in our life. And in doing so, Paul summarizes in a way, chapter 1, in those three glorious statements that we looked at last time that are found here in chapter 2, verses 5 and 6. And then he concludes them with a summary statement in verses Or in verse 7. You remember what he told us in verses 5 and 6. Even when we were dead. Even when the sin reality of our life, because we were in Adam when he sinned, even when we were dead in our transgressions, God did something. God made us alive together with Christ. And God raised us up with Him And He seated us with Him in the heavenly places. So we are made alive together with Christ. We are raised up together with Christ. And we are seated together with Christ. You notice, as you read through chapter 1 and chapter 2, it's all about what God's doing. Not about what we have accomplished. It's not about what we brought to the equation It's all about what God has done. The Apostle Paul is so conscious of the need 
for us as believers, for the Ephesian believers to be motivated by the power of God in their sanctification, that he highlights for them their actual union with Jesus Christ. That what we have through our salvation with Christ is so marvelous, so wonderful, so great, so so much so that we need to revel in it. We need to sit in it like a like a like a soothing hot tub, if you will, and just let it soak upon us. Understanding what we have in Christ so that we might know who we are and therefore then live as we ought. In the days of the ancient Near East, there were no words to describe that. There were no words developed in the beginning languages of the ancient world in which it would describe those very great concepts, those theological truths that Paul is laying forth. And so Paul manufactures words in order to, to describe it. Paul's so amazed at what God has done that he took three words that describe what happened with Christ after his death, that Christ was made alive, that Christ was raised up, that Christ was taken and sat down at the right hand of the Father, that he adds a prefix to those words in order to help us understand the magnitude of what God has done with us in salvation. And when we think on them together, we have to grasp that they describe to us what has happened with us as a result of our union with Christ through the predetermined plan of God for us. It was not us who got ourselves there. It was solely and only God who brought us there. This is what's such a wonderful thing about our discussion even earlier tonight as we were discussing the whole idea of evangelism and realizing when it comes to the, the, the sharing of the gospel that there is nothing I can do. There isn't even the best arguments in the world that can convince someone that they need to come to Jesus Christ. It is God alone. I oftentimes think about it this way. There is no better preacher in the world to ever preach the gospel than Jesus Christ. Every word that Jesus said, every sentence that Jesus had, every way in which Jesus had formulated those sentences in order to say them were the perfect way he could have ever said them. There was never a mistake. No word was ever out of place. There was never a run-on sentence or a paragraph that didn't make sense. And yet, people who heard Jesus speak did not believe in Jesus. You, you can open your Bible with people, and you can read the very words that we have in the Scriptures, and people go away disbelieving. Why? Because it is not us. It is God who saves. This is what the Apostle Paul is marveling at about his life, and he wants us to understand. And I wonder sometimes if we think of our salvation in those terms, a union with Christ. A union with Christ. When we think of our salvation, it isn't as if we, God reached out and saved us and that's it. No, we are actually unified with Christ. In fact, the only reason we are saved at all is because we are in Christ. And we need to think of it like that because having that reality on our minds is a strong weapon for us against living for self. 
It is a strong motivation for us in living for Christ. We are unified with Christ. We have a tendency to sin with abandon when we think God isn't there. And yet, when we think about it and we understand our union with Christ in our salvation, we will not quickly run to sinful things. We understand that as Christians. We understand that God is always there. And yet, oftentimes, we convince ourselves in a fleshly way that somehow when we sin, somehow I'm by myself. And yet the reality is we are in union with Christ. And so we are sinning with Christ right there. And so even here in Ephesians chapter 1, this whole idea of union with Christ is seen by the words of Paul over and over again as we are in Him. That is used over and over and over again. He chose us in Him, verse 4. He predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to Himself to the praise of His glory. Verse 7, in Him we have redemption, the forgiveness of our trespasses which He lavished on us. In all wisdom and insight, he made known to us the mystery of his will according to the kind intention which he purposed in him. In him, in him, in him. We are unified with Christ. Beloved, never forget, never let it slip your mind as you're walking in your Christian life that Christ is right there in your salvation. You are saved because Christ is unified with you. So when you come to chapter 2, What is Paul meaning when he says we were made alive and we were raised up and we were seated with Christ? Well, we looked at this last time, but I think it's profitable for a little review since we've been away from this for four weeks or so. You remember I told us last time that there is the idea of this federal headship idea that we have in those statements. In other words, a a a representative on behalf of those that follow, much like you see right now going on in Israel as the president of Israel, Benjamin Netanyahu, has declared war on what is happening in that country. He is the federal head for the country. And so when he declares war, everybody who's linked with that country is now at war. They're with it. This is the idea. This is the federal headship idea. So when Paul says, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, as God is speaking, when Paul uses those terms, he is saying that it is our technical position. Before God, we are made alive. In the eyes of God, we are raised up. In the eyes of God, we are seated with Christ. So it's our technical position before God as a result of our union with Christ in our salvation. God has done that. Christ is our federal head. He is our representative before God. And so whatever is happening with Jesus Christ is happening with us who are united with Him. And so Paul says first, by way of practicality and really by way of chronology as he's listed them here in this text, we are made alive together with Christ. That's what he says in verse 5. Even when we were dead in our transgressions, God made us alive together with Christ. He throws in that parenthetical statement that he picks up again back down in verse 8, for by grace 
you have been saved. It's a, it's a reminder once again that it had nothing to do with us. It had everything to do with God. And yet we were made alive. It was God who made us alive. We didn't somehow come to breathing on our own. We didn't recognize God going by somehow in our dead state and somehow wake up and go, oh, I think that's attractive. I'll go to God. No, we didn't do that. God made us alive. He quickened us to life. It's clear from this passage that in our natural spiritual condition, we were dead. We were dead in our sins. That's what Paul says in verse 1 of chapter 2, when we were dead in our sins. He reiterates that here in verse 5, even when we were dead in our transgressions, dead in our sins. But now, through our union with Christ, we have been made alive. Why? Because Christ was made alive. Here's another reality to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Deny the resurrection, you deny your salvation. You realize that? You don't have a salvation unless Christ has been made alive. Because Christ is made alive, you were made alive. If Christ was not made alive, then we were not made alive. We are not saved at all. And we understand that. We understand death because we see it all around us. Especially death... In a physical way, we understand that, right? A physical death, a physical person is absolutely unconscious. They are unable in any kind of way to respond to anything around them. They're completely inactive. They're in an active sense of decay. They're going away. And while we can see that in a physical reality, it's true also in our spiritual reality. The condition of all people without a relationship with God. Without a saving relationship with God, we are dead in our trespasses. Until we believe in Jesus Christ, there is no life. There is no life in the time continuum in which we live. God has elected those whom He will save before the foundation of the world. He has bestowed upon them all the blessings in the heavenly realms. And one of those is that you will be made alive. But that doesn't happen until being in time. And so for all of us and those who are, were spiritually dead, we were unconscious to spiritual things. We were unresponsive to the things of God on our own. We were unable and unwilling to serve God at all. We were decaying morally every day. We see that in our world. It is a constant spiral downward farther into the abyss of self-serving, living for self in every kind of debauchery that man's heart can dream of. But God made us alive with Christ, Paul said. In other words, it was God who changed us. It was God who grabbed us out of the cesspool of sin. It was God who made us willing to serve Him. It was God who made us spiritually receptive to the Gospel. It was God so that when we were, as we will see in a moment, when we were raised up with Christ, God stopped the moral decay and changed it to life. Change that life to growth in practical righteousness. That is to say that there is no greater a change in all of our natural condition than to go from dead to living. And it's the same in the spiritual life. There's no greater change in life than a person go from being spiritually dead to spiritually alive. 
That's why we always say in the Christian church, or at least in this church, if transformation is not visible and active, someone claims to know Jesus Christ, if they claim they are alive with God, if they are unified with Jesus Christ, if that transformation shows no visible activeness in that person's life, then we have to question whether they actually are saved. Because if they're alive, then they'll be doing living things. They're unified with Christ. If there is no change, then there is no life. And if there is no life, then there is no union with Christ. And if there is no union with Christ, there is no Christian. So we have to understand that. We have to understand that one of the greatest motivations for our practical Christian living, for practical sanctification, for walking in obedience, having victory over sin, is the reality of being made alive with Christ. We're not dead anymore. We're alive. This is why I've said it before. You've heard me say it. Can't is not a word in the Christian realm that we can use with some kind of impunity and say, I can't do that. Yes, you can. You've been given the Spirit of God. You can do it. You can obey. You can overcome that sin. You can walk in obedience to Christ. If you walk by the Spirit, you will not carry out the deeds of the flesh. You can do it. But that is not all Paul says, because Paul goes on and he says we have been not only made alive with Christ, but also we have been raised up with Christ. Verse 6, right? Even when we were dead in our transgressions, He raised us up with Christ. Now, of course, our natural minds think, when we hear those words, we think of resurrection. And I think it's normal. It's normal for us to think that raised up kind of sounds like a resurrection happening. And I think that in some ways is included here because resurrection has to happen in order to be raised up. But the idea of resurrection is just quietly sounding off in the background. Because more than the resurrection here, as necessary as that is for us, right? what Paul is referring to here, as I said last time, is the ascension of Christ. The ascension of Christ. Christ returning to His former glory. Not only were we dead in our transgressions, made alive with Christ, resurrection is enveloped in that. But then Christ was ascending. He ascended to His former glory. In other words, the resurrection of us, we've already seen. The resurrection of us is when Christ makes us alive. Resurrection is implied in those words. So when Christ was made alive, what happened was the resurrection. Christ was in the grave. He was made alive. He rose. And so what is being referred to in verse 6 is the ascension of Christ back to glory. In other words, having been made alive from our dead condition, being in Christ and through His resurrection, we are now spiritually alive because He is alive so that also when Christ ascended to heaven, we were taken with Christ, unified with Christ. We were taken with Him into the heavenly places. We were with Him when He was raised up. That's why Paul says it that way. He raised us up with Christ. In what way? In what way were we raised up? Well, in that we have been given a new environment. This is no longer our home, right? We have been lifted out of, if you will. Trans- the the, the uh, writer of, or Paul writing to the Colossian believers says, 
we've been transferred. It's this whole doctrine of transference. We've not only been transferred out of the domain of darkness, in other words, the domain of sin, into the kingdom of Christ, but we have been raised up with Christ. We, this is no longer our home. We have a new environment that we live in. We've been given new life. We've been taken with Christ to the heavenly places and given a new environment. So this is no longer our environment. We are citizens of heaven. This is what the Apostle Peter said, right? We are aliens and strangers here on this earth. That which is here is not for us. This is a temporal place. Therefore, it's no longer our longing. This place is not to be our longing. It is not to be the place where we desire to stay for as long as possible. Our new longing is to be for heaven. To be for the things of heaven. To be with God and His people there. Once we lived in this world, now we live for Christ. We once were living for the things of this world, for the things of this earth, for the world's ways, for how the world thought. That's how we thought. That was our way of thinking. Now we live and speak and love in heavenly ways. Why? Because this world is not our home. And so we long to be with Christ. Here's how Paul said it in Colossians 3. Therefore, if you have been raised up with Christ, there's that idea, if you've not only been made alive, that's, that happens it, already. If you're a Christian, Paul says, if you've been raised up, if you've been brought up with Christ, then seek those things above, where Christ is where he's seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on the things above, not on the things of the earth. If this is true, if this is the condition of who you are, if you've been raised up with Christ, then, then look to Christ. Why? Because you died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. And so when Christ, who is our life, is revealed, then you also will be revealed with Him in glory. You say, well, I don't see that now. Well, that day's coming. The day of glory is coming. So what we value now is in light of heaven, not in light of this earth. How we speak now is in light of heaven. What we follow after now is, is in light of heaven. It's, it's our eyes fixed on Christ. Why? Because we have a new disposition. We have a new environment. We're alive. We're raised up. This is because we have a union with Christ. See, without a union with Christ, we're not even aware of what heaven is all about. We don't even know we're citizens of it. But God made us alive with Christ. God raised us up with Christ. Christ. And then Paul says, God also seated us with him. He seated us with him in the heavenly places. That is simply to say that in Christ we have been put at the highest place. We didn't just sneak into heaven. We didn't come quietly through the back door and, ooh, hey, we finally got in. No, God has placed us at the highest place. There's no higher place than to be in Christ next to the Father. That means that as Christ is there, so are we. That's our position. That's how God sees us. God sees us as children in Him right now, spiritually. 
And that will be our position when we leave this temporal place and we are changed into that glorious spiritual body. We will be at the highest place and God will see us as his children, beloved. And that, beloved, ought to motivate us, shouldn't it? That ought to motivate us into living for Christ today. Why should that motivate us? Because we will be in the glories of heaven. That's what we are now in our union with Christ. So why would we want to live unlike we are? That's Paul's idea. That means that in Christ we have victory. We have the ability to not sin. We have the ability to develop and or to uh, build up unity in the body rather than disunity. We have security. We have privilege. We have finality. So why would God do all that for us? You ever sit and wonder why? Why me? Why would God do that for me? Why would God save me? Why would God unify me with His Son? I mean, why would God choose me to be part of His family and bestow upon me all of the blessings in the heavenly places? Why? Why are we unified with Christ at all? Well, Paul has already touched on it in verse 4. Verse 4, he said, God being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us. So there's the idea that this, this reason flows out of the very mercy and love of God, which is the nature and character of God on display. So God is rich in mercy and his love for his son is such that his love for us is the same so that he could not leave us in our miserable sinful state. That's a God wouldn't do that. God couldn't say, oh yes, I've chosen you, but I'll leave you the way you are. That would be impossible. God's rich in mercy and love. But also, he says, notice in verse 7, so that, here's why he did it. God raised us up. God made us alive. He raised us up and he seated us with Christ. Why? Here's the purpose. So that in the ages to come, he might show the surpassing riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. You ever want to know why God saved any of us? There's the reason. He didn't save us because we're cool people to hang around with. He didn't save us because he, he just looked down the annals of time and found nice people who would someday choose him. No, he saved us because he wants us to see and understand and revel in the surpassing riches of his grace and kindness toward us that he lavished on us in Christ. That's why we are with Christ. That's why we are right next to God the Father as we are united with God the Son next to God the Father so that we might know and see the fullness of His grace that He lavished upon us in and through His Son. We learn something marvelous and wondrous about the very character and nature of God that we could never see any other way had God not allowed sin to happen and save us from our sinful, hellish direction in Christ. We wouldn't know the grace of God. 
God wants us all. He wants all of us or His chosen children to be overwhelmed at His glorious mercy. Some people say, well, when I get to heaven, I'm just going to, I'm going to go right up to Peter and say, Peter, why did you do that? Or, or Adam, why did you do that? Or any of the other saints that we know in heaven, we want to ask him these grand theological questions. I got news for you. There's only one thing you're going to want to do when you get to heaven, and that is revel and marvel at the grace of God. We're not going to sit and wonder about the theological nutbag questions that we come up with in our mind. We're just going to revel at God. We're going to be so overwhelmed with the surpassing riches of His grace and kindness toward us in Christ that we just want to worship. We just worship Him. It's going to be overwhelmingly mind-blowing. The only way that would happen is by God choosing us in Christ. The only way that happens is by us seeing that God has granted to us all the spiritual blessings in the heavenly places through our union with Jesus Christ. So He makes us alive in Christ. He raises us up with Christ to the heavenly places and He seats us right next to Him so that we might see Him in His full glorious beauty through that union with Christ. I mean, I think for eternity we'll be sitting there going, you know, I really don't belong here. I remember my old self at all. This is crazy. I'm here with God. Now being in Christ, being alive to God, you and I can hear God intimately. Before we couldn't hear Him at all. Before we wanted nothing to do with God. Before we were dead in our transgressions. And we we couldn't even hear God at all. We were dead. We were unanimated to the things of God. Now we hear Him. We open His Word. We hear Him through His Word. And we can know that we hear Him. And we walk by faith in what He says in obedience to Him. This is what God wants. This is what builds unity in the body. Unity in the body comes no other way. This is living out our sanctification in honor to Christ. Sanctification in our life happens no other way. It only happens through obedience and it begins in understanding that we are actually unified with Christ. That we have a vital, actual, literal union with Jesus Christ and all of us who are in Christ have spiritually become as God has desired us to be. We are alive in Christ. We are raised up with Christ. We are seated with Christ. And it's all because of what God has done. Nothing in and of us. And so Paul begins to summarize all of that in verses 8-10. through Probably one of the most quoted set of verses in the entire Bible. We know it here. I could probably not even read it. You've already started to say it in your own mind. For we, right? For God has saved us. By grace you have been saved through faith. And that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. Not as a result of works. So that no one may boast. But we are His workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. Which God prepared beforehand 
so that we should walk in them. That little phrase, God prepared beforehand, could be attached to chapter 1. It could be attached to every verse in chapter 1. It could be attached to every verse we've gone to up to this point. God prepared beforehand. It is God who did it. We can't get into all that these verses say tonight. We're going to do that next time. But this incredible journey has taken us from the lowest valleys to the highest peaks. It has taken us from from Death Valley, as we said before, to the highest point, as I said to us a few weeks ago, about the highest pinnacle peak in the continental United States, Mount Whitney. Death Valley is only about 100 miles from there. That's the lowest point. This is what we see here. The exclamation point of it all is that it was all of grace. That's the exclamation point on it all. If Paul was writing one sentence and trying to keep it all together, this would be his punctuation. For by grace you have been saved through faith. It is all of grace. What brings about the spiritual reality of us being made alive and raised up and seated with Christ is the reality of grace. That is the reality of our spiritual life. It is God's grace who does it, and it is God's grace who gives us the spiritual ability that we ought to live according to. We are His workmanship, Paul says. And if we are His workmanship, therefore we should walk in obedience to those things. That's why Paul says it that way. We are His workmanship created in Christ. Not just to hang out and say, hey, I, I like Jesus. No, we are created in Christ for good works. The ones God prepared, and we should walk in them. What a blessing. What a joy. God does His part, and He has commanded us and equipped us to do ours. It's not just God. It's all of God equipping us to do what God requires of us. What a privilege. What a motivation. Right? We can have victory. We can do what we ought to do. We can do what we need to do and what's right before God in obedience to God because God's grace has equipped us to do so. You say, well, what's Paul's ultimate point? The ultimate point is this. There is nothing more wonderful than God's workmanship working for Him. Let me say that again. There is no more wonderful thing in the economy of God than God's workmanship, i.e. you and I who have been saved by grace through faith, attached to Jesus Christ. There's no greater wonder than us working for Christ. And us doing what God said. And the way we do that is remember who we are. All that God has given us and who we are in Jesus Christ. When we have that in our mindset, we can begin and will begin to walk as we ought to walk. You notice in verse 11, Paul says, Therefore remember that you, that formerly you, the Gentiles in the flesh, who are called uncircumcision by the so-called circumcision. In other words, the Jews call you this. Right? Circumcision performed in flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time when you were outside, when God was only working with the Jews before God began to draw in the Gentiles as we saw in the beginnings of Pentecost and 
and the beginnings of the church. Remember, you at that time were separate from Christ. You were outside. You were excluded from Israel. Strangers to the covenants of promise. You had no hope without God in the world. Does that mean the plan of God was in effect? No, it's just that he hadn't brought them in yet. They were part of the before the foundation of the world plan of God, but God hadn't brought them in yet. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who were formerly far off had been brought near. For he himself is our peace, and he made both one. Paul is driving this unity issue home with the Jews and the Gentiles because he knows what brings it together, and that is knowing who you are in Christ. But Christ is our peace. Christ is our unifier. Being in Christ and understanding we're in Christ is a motivator for obedience. And so Paul says in chapter 3, I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, for the sake of you, Gentiles, if indeed you've heard of the stewardship of God's grace which was given to me. He says, I'm telling you, even though I'm the least of saints, down in verse 8, even though this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles and fathomable riches of Christ, telling you all this, right, this was the eternal purpose, therefore, Verse 13, I ask you not to lose heart at my tribulations. He says, listen, don't, don't think lowly of me. It's all for a purpose. So I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling which you're called. So this is the direction, beloved. This is where we need to go in our minds and our hearts. This is how we ought to think. This is what God has done. This is how God brought you into his family, and this is how you ought to live. God's workmanship working for him. And we'll get into verses 8 through 10 next time. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for bringing us back to this text. Thank you for the rich wonder that it is and knowing that our union with Christ is vital, it is real, it is actual, that in Christ we have everything we need, you have bestowed upon us the blessings in the spiritual realms, all that we could ever have, and you have unified us with your son Jesus Christ, in which all of that becomes ours, it's all of you, it's none of us, it's because of your mercy and grace, Lord, even now before the glories of heaven, when we arrive there and revel at you in eternity, for all eternity, may we start to marvel at you now. May that wonder just shake us and motivate us inside that we do walk by the Spirit, not carrying out the deeds of the flesh, but walking in obedience to you that you might be glorified by us. That unity in the body would be strengthened and solidified so that nothing could separate us from one another, that there's no schisms and no sinfulness, no selfish seeking of ourselves that we would undermine your body, building it together with humility and love for one another. Help us to live for you, honor you, striving to honor Christ, knowing that he's always there with us. And may you be glorified and honored in it all as we do. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.